Whether you keep them in your home or love to see them in theirs, these are the creatures that bring us all together. Reptiles. Reptiles. We're going to be delving into the experiences of reptile lovers from around the block and around the world. This is the Reptile Talk Podcast. What's going on, everybody? My name is Jeremy Turgeon from Brassman Reptiles. And I'm Rob, and I'm creeping it real. All right, man. So this is episode three. Boom. And I'm pretty stoked because uh, it's almost like a, 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 a kind throwback. of a throwback. Yeah. Uh, because we're joined by the one and only mad scientist himself, Mr. Stephen Tillis. What's going on, Steve? Thank you guys for having me. Oh, uh, not much. Same old same. Lots of lab work, lots of sink work. The best things, you know. The best things. Yep. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I guess I, I'm in the lucky place where, where my two get to intersect. So Right? That right? is true. Not everyone gets to do that. So I want to, for those of for those people who are like just checking this out, we we talked a little bit on the very first episode how like we did this podcast what seven years ago? A while ago. Um yeah, that's kind of a while ago. So before we really dive into some stuff uh, let's let's throw it back a little bit. Uh, what the hell were you doing seven years ago other than making me feel like an insignificant piece of shit? <laughs> oh, yeah. So I guess seven years ago, that was that was when we, at least I just started uh, undergrad. And so um, I did my undergrad. I, I did my undergrad and now my PhD at, at University of Florida. Um, my undergrad was in wildlife ecology and conservation. So at the time, the... Uh, Snake collection was—I I don't even remember what I what I had. It was probably not a lot, less than a hundred snakes. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just getting in the groove of school, and and I uh, was working for just started working for Eugene Bissett around that same time too. So yeah, that was that was a long time ago. That was <laughs> that a was lifetime the, ago. Uh, yeah, yeah set, setting the the foundation, I guess, for for what all I'm at now. Yeah. Now, and in the midst of all that, you're personal collection has changed quite a bit too yeah it's it's ebbed and flowed over the years i think that was when i um really first started scaling up on the the blood pythons um i think before that it was mostly carpet pythons and um uh ball pythons and stuff like that and i I had some blood pythons um but but yeah got got hooked in line with the right people and, and really started scaling up on the blood pythons I remember that because um, I remember seeing photos and was just like, he's done it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really I can never take really too much credit for, for, for any of the, the stuff I've been lucky enough to do. It, it, it's all just been stupid luck in the right place at the right time kind of thing. You know, it, it's never part of a grander plan or anything like that. So, so yeah, that was that was just meeting the right people at the right time. There's always a grander plan, and speaking of meeting the right people, so you were talking about Eugene Bissett, and when we were just down there at Carpet Fest, uh, you kind of helped us out to go check out his place. Uh, so wh- where did you meet Eugene initially? Uh, so I met Eugene for the first time when I was 16 at a, at a reptile expo. Um, I was vending the expo down in Orlando, um, and uh, I think I had some green tree pythons on the, on the table that I had produced, and he was walking around, and... and saw them and for those who don't know he's uh, eugene originally how do you even say originally when you're talking about eugene right (laughs) at some point during eugene's career he was really well known for uh 
green tree pythons. And so, you know, he said, oh, those are nice looking green tree pythons. Uh, you know, how about you come check out my facility at some point? And then, um, you know, I think we had a of school and so I, I drove up here to Gainesville I was living in Orlando at the time and um, that was how I first got introduced to Eugene is, is seeing his colony and the colony looks very different then than it does now um, and then when I moved up here for for undergrad um, I ended up buying a property that's like literally as a crow flies maybe a quarter mile from his facility and mm-hmm. so you know I, I was like hey I'll be looking for a job I'm moving up there you happen to be hiring and, and yeah, I guess the rest is history. That's crazy. So when you first started working with him, were you just another, uh, shit cleaner? <laughs> yeah, no, for, for years. Um, yeah, for years that was, that was my role. It's basically, you know, just, just generic cleaner. Um, mm-hmm. and then as you know, the more years I spent there, the more I started going to kind of expos with him and stuff like that and kind of getting a full feel of, of how his business flows. And then that's what kind of, if it weren't for those foundational years of, of, you know, just years of knowing how his business operates, how the workflow goes and all that stuff put me in the position to build the databases that I did that, mm. that are so ingrained with the workflow there. And so, so yeah, it really started as, again, another happy accident that I can't take any credit for, for planning so much as just, you know, because I had done so much grunt work at, at, the facility in the first place i knew exactly where uh a database could fit in line and, and really improve or, or work in line with a uh, workflow yeah and that database is impressive it's something out of the future yeah the future <laughs> literally literally yeah. and, and honestly it's just the beginning in terms of the potential of what we can really do with it i, I have some, some if you come back in a year or two it'll be even more impressive than than how it looks now and again it's not something that i could say yeah from the beginning i I fully envisioned what it would end up being but but i don't think there's another facility on the planet um that is anywhere close to the to the data system that that eugene has yeah so eugene has always been like super big on keeping records and he's kept really like really thorough records for years and years and years so when it came to your database, you were working with you were working outside of Eugene's place with that database, right? Or did you kind of build it to to fit his? No, I built I built it exclusively for his place. Yeah, I, honestly, that database as it stands now would be almost less outside of that facility because it is so ingrained into the workflow, and that's why it works. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, reptile databases available out there and, and it always feels like you're trying to conform your collection to the database mm-hmm. um, instead of you know having this opportunity to build something literally from the ground up and build the database for the collection. Now that also means that that database outside of the context of that collection would be you know just as semi cumbersome to, to uh, implement in a different facility than, than any of the other databases, if not even more so, mm. um, because it is just so customized to the workflow. But at the same point, it, it puts us in a position where we can take an, you know, an employee and have them really you know, drop them into not only the, the, the system in terms of how we you know, clean cages or, or um, manage the animals or anything like that, but also to plug them into that database. So it's all one thing. You know, the database and the workflow are the exact same thing where the two are 
so married to each other that it, it completely improves our efficiency drastically. But but at the same token, if you took that, you know, just one of those two components and and tried to implement them elsewhere, I don't think they'd be anywhere near as as uh, useful. It it really is the customization that makes it so powerful. Yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing having seen just a glimpse of it. I mean, I still stare at that printout that Eugene had uh, had you do for me, and I'm like, holy shit! Like, <laughs> it's impressive. Like the 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 amount of like specificity to it is mm-hmm. is what really impresses me. Yeah, it, it's it's really handy because you know I still kind of consult on on managing the colony, um, but you know. Basically, I'm there for maybe maybe 10, 10 minutes a week. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of this database, I have this, this bird's eye view. Basically, I feel like my finger's always on the pulse of the colony, even though I'm not there at all. Yeah. And that's just because of, of the type of data and the longevity of the data and, and the breadth of the data that we've been collecting. Yeah, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting about it was like, so Eugene's been keeping records for decades um, and when you guys started using that system, you only input, I think you said like three or four years previously, and you were already able to see really specific trends in in that, yeah. which I With, think is amazing that in even just a short period of time, you could see so much. Yeah, with the, the, the collection size that he has, it doesn't take very long to get a, a really large sample size and start looking at some really interesting patterns. And, and mm-hmm. honestly, that's just, that's just the beginning of it. Now, where we have it now that, that we are, so this was our first year implementing some of the barcode stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, now the next goal is to scale that out to a whole different level where basically what I told, what I told Eugene is that three years from now, the system will be picking out our holdbacks based off of the feeding records of the parents. Mm-hmm. Oof. That's pretty cool. Sheesh. That's, so, I can't even, that doesn't even register <laughs> for me. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, it's a power that I don't think, again, it, it, it's one of those things where, where the more layers you add, the more you can kind of see what you can do with it. And, and yeah, I think the potential is, is through the roof in terms of what you can, what the data can tell you. Man. And yeah, that's so the, the biggest thing, too, is that and the hardest thing, too, is that it's one thing to just collect data. And, and so for Gene, for the longest time, had, you know, paper cards for all of his animals. And so it was all just paper data collection. And that's mm-hmm. that's really good data to have. But it's not you can't just snap your fingers and, and have that magically jump onto a spreadsheet in front of you. Yeah, so, right. you know, it, it's there's collecting data for data's sake and then there's figuring out how to collect it in a way that you can actually mine patterns and, and, and pick out particular uh, trends and stuff. Basically, that, that data needs to be easily mineable. It needs to be easily right, accessible. Right, right. And that has been the biggest uh, change, I guess. And, and, you know, it was it was lucky in that Eugene is so data-oriented that, that basically it was like, this is the same thing you've been doing, except for now you have a magic wand that tells you everything without having to go and <laughs> look at a thousand data cards. Yeah. That's that's magical. <laughs> it really is because I remember coming coming back from from that trip down there, like that was probably one of the top five things 
that was like stuck in my brain was like mm-hmm. the intensity of that system and then like thinking of a way to like bring that back in some shape to uh Implement to what it, we're doing yeah. at nerd and uh yeah. i still have not figured that out <laughs> um but uh <laughs> but being able to like input some data just throwing stuff on a spreadsheet um for what we were seeing with just last year's pairings like i was immediately able to see uh certain trends or like where things were in racks um how that affected like the temperature difference from one side of the room to the other and what we were seeing in correlation to clutch sizes and how well some of those females did i was like oh that's actually pretty pretty interesting um and that's literally just throwing something in microsoft excel and just being like yep there it is Mm -hmm. and then being horrified at the amount of ball pythons that are in the entire building (laughs) <laughs> and we're saying that and we we are producing you know one sixth the amount of ball pythons that eugene's doing yeah so. exactly exactly yeah yeah let's not talk about yeah. those but, I mean, numbers it, it, <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's uh it's impressive it really is and, and you know I, I say that very humbly because again it's not like I, i'm like oh i have a brilliant idea of how i could build a giant reptile database it's like okay i'm tired of dealing with this word document of all these printed IDs. This is not a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. All right, let's just have a spreadsheet. Okay, let's turn that into two spreadsheets that talk to each other, which is which is all a database is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just, you know, it, it, the the product that you built, the, that you saw, was what took me five years to get to that point of, of, of tinkering with it and saying, okay, well, this worked. Now let's add one more layer of complexity and so on and so on and so on. And it's not like, again, it's not like I had an original vision for any of it. It just, mm-hmm. you know, I stumble my way through it and, and realize the power that I've accidentally built into my fingertips, you know? Jeez, dude, you're an evil genius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's my business model now at this point, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, uh, I, I've, I've, I still have quite a really what I've shifted my colony towards is, is, is a wide variety of, of python species, but mm-hmm. low numbers of, of a high diversity of pythons. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've turned my business into is, is, is I told myself I don't ever want to sell another snake to a customer again. Like, I just, I, I, I'm so far over it that, that a word you will, or a sentence you'll not hear in the future is, oh, I got that snake from Stephen Tillis. Like, it's just, <laughs> I, I, just, I don't want to deal with I'm over it. So now I've turned my facility into uh, what I call it is uh, the experimental laboratory of herpticulture. Mm. Um, I've turned my collection into this, this mad scientist tinkering stuff. And, you know, with any of that, the, the failure rate is always incredibly high when you're, whenever you're trying new different things. But, but at the same time, you occasionally stumble into a, a good idea and it does some cool things. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so another interesting point is you're uh, the o- probably the only person in probably the world that has actual locality ball pythons. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it's uh, so I've done two trips to West Africa, mm-hmm. um, and I was actually there for uh, pangolin conservation stuff. Um, yeah, just rub it in. Go ahead, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was again a, a happy accident that I get to you know stumble into a project that happened to be taking me to a part of the world that I already had interest in. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so while we're there, uh, because we're you know dealing with with governmental conservation entities anyway, we were kind of plugged into that that wildlife network. Anyway, so I got to you know tour all the farms and, and stuff like that, um, mm-hmm. which was really cool and, and really got an understanding for how these farms work. Um, and so, yeah, how these farms work is when a villager stumbling around West Africa finds a, a gravid ball python in a rat burrow in his corn cornfield or whatever, mm-hmm. um, they'll collect that gravid female. They send them to a central location, usually in the capital of whatever country. So there's a lot of those businesses in um, Accra and Ghana, and then a lot in um, Lome and, and Togo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, the females lay their eggs, and then you know the babies are sold if they if they can get a good money for them. If not, they'll end up actually releasing a fair bit back into the wild. Mm. Um, and then after the the females are done laying, they get sent back to the wild. At least that's how it has been operating. Now that that are so there's a little side tangent that the, the um, we're producing normal ball pythons for so cheap now that that the export side is actually about the same price as the snakes actually sell for. Mm-hmm. And so now those snakes are not worth anywhere near as much uh, as they used to be. And so now a lot of those females, instead of going back into the wild to, to then collect next year, are going into the skin trade. So it, it's, mm. again, a little side tangent that that um, our production of ball pythons here has direct relevance towards, towards their captive counterparts because what before was kind of a semi – it seemed to be pretty sustainable, honestly – of, of ranching ball pythons and then releasing females and some of the offspring back in the wild is now mm. just, you know, collect, sell the offspring if we can, sell the parents for skin trade. So when those females are redistributed out into the wild, a lot of times the information from where they came from is, is not really paid attention to. It's, you know, you brought in 300 ball pythons, and so here's 300 ball pythons to put back out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that, across their range in West Africa, I wouldn't put really any credence whatsoever into a, into a true locality ball python because it, right. it's, it's, you know, they're, they're being kind of brought to a centralized location playing, you know, musical chairs and then tossed back out into the wild. So um, what, what we had done with part of this project is it took us to middle of nowhere, West Africa um, in Togo. And, and so the whole region we were in is in the Volta region, and so you see a lot of ball pythons tagged with the name Volta, and mm-hmm. it, it it has absolutely no nothing to it. Volta is 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 a a locality that's like half of the ball python range is technically in Volta is, is is in the Volta region, so it's it's like a nothing name to go along with that's it. Perfect. Um, it's like getting yeah, a, a but, corn but then, snake from the eastern United States. You're like, yeah, yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> But really, all these Volta females are are just really old, ancient ball pythons that happen to live long enough without being eaten by something or mm-hmm. someone. Um, but, you know, you slap a cool tag on it, and now it's a Volta, and you could ask for a lot of money for it. Right. But anyway, so uh, we were in the Volta region, and we got to go into some, like, really middle-of-nowhere type places. And um, there was this one... French guy who lived in one of the villages who um, was like the one guy that, that whenever you, they found a snake that they were scared of, he would come and, and remove it. Mm-hmm. And on his front porch, he had this wire cage with like, like chicken wire cage with like a 
a python that he had cor- uh, collected from the local area uh, in it. And so in that cage was this six-foot, uh, two-inch female ball python, and then I picked out a male to go with her, where basically I, I know the exact locality that these ball pythons came from to the village, mm. and it's a village where the trade isn't uh, developed in, in any kind of way where those females will be swapped around. So it's basically a true locality ball python that is, you know, I will, I'm vehemently opposed to, to attaching the name Volta to it, but <laughs> from the Volta region, this giant female, now that being said, of, she was a giant female that we found, every other ball python that we found was, was you know, far well within the range of a normal ball python size, So which is why, again, I said that mm. the locality thing is kind of a bull. Yeah. But, um, Anyway, so yeah, I have these locality ball pythons that, that I brought back from West Africa where, where we went to the village, and I ended up trading the guy a pair of snake tongs for it because he had just gotten bit by a stiletto snake like oof, a month oof. before because he, had, he was using like a piece of bent rebar or something. Yeah. Oof. Ouch. That's yeah, actually, bite. the stiletto snakes were the, were the most common snakes that we found there. Really? Yeah, it was actually the first snake we found because the first one I found was like six foot up a tree, and we almost grabbed it because I'm like, it's a, what is, you know, there's, there's no venomous snake that looks like this that would be living in a tree, right? Mm-hmm. And then right as I go to grab it, I'm like, you know, that looks awfully stiletto-y. <laughs> Let me hook it, and then you know, the second I hook it, that that fang comes flipping right out and, and jabs that hook. So I'm like, well, that would have that would have been a short trip. So, yeah, that would have ended the whole um, trip right there. Damn. Yeah, so it's, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I traded them a pair of snake tongs for these this pair of ball pythons and brought them back, and we're finally able to get them to breed, and so these are these are probably the only true locality ball pythons that aren't just tagged with some bullshitty name that aren't, you know, mixed from, from a bunch of different localities from from the farming process. So it's, you know, it, 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 it is something very unique, and it's something that, again, it's, I, I was actually impressed by how much people liked them um, mm-hmm. because at the time, you know, I was like, me and four people are going to care about this and everyone else is going to be like, why, <laughs> why did you waste the postage? Yeah. So what, so now what you're, you're going to be able to do is uh, you create a whole uh, vein of locality specific ball Python lovers that hate everybody else yeah because that's pretty much what exists in every other aspect of the industry so yeah the, the only thing the ball pythons are missing is is the uh, pretentious locality people that's so. true yes. so now you can start that that vein of people and uh we'll look back and laugh and then call you an asshole for it yeah i mean that that female is a really big ball python. it really is no it definitely it's a really, really big ball python and and there's a difference and this is why i say that they're just really old females is because it's not just that she's a big ball python like you can raise a big ball python if you feed the ever-loving snot out of it yeah that's not what this snake is this yeah. snake the the head on it is it's quite massive. the size of any other ball python yeah. I've ever seen of a comparable size, and yeah. and there's that is something that that I cannot duplicate in captivity. So I I also have a project of, of South Florida uh, locality Burmese pythons, mm-hmm. um, and if I pluck a, a six foot snake out of the wild and then compare it with a six foot captive snake that I've raised. 
it does not matter what diet I've fed it. It doesn't matter if I've tried to get it big in a year or if I've tried to, you know, I have, I have some animals that have been, they're like 2017s and they're just six foot long because I've fed them so slowly. Mm-hmm. does not matter. The head on that wild caught snake is going to be twice the size as any captive worm that I could raise. And I have no idea what the mechanism Okay. All right. We're still recording. That's we're cool. back. I, yeah, we're back. I don't know. I don't know what the heck that was. Um, yeah. Okay. So we. So it. It just cut us off when you were talking about. So, uh, the head of that animal will always be, a twice the size, and you. You don't know what the mechanism for that is. Yeah. 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 So I. I don't. And that's with the Burmese pythons. But again, I've. I've never seen a captive ball python that's been raised under any feeding regimen that's come. That, that has that same size, but also that same head size. That's that's natural grown, cannot fake it any other way. We've not perfected the science type growth. That that again just makes me think that these are just really old females. They're not anything special yeah. genetically, other than that they're genetically, I guess, live a long time. That's interesting. That is really interesting. Uh, it makes me wonder if. Uh, the high competition or just having to go with food items that might not be like, you know, in, in captivity, we're giving them food items that we think are perfectly sized for them. So something that they can very easily overpower. And then sometimes you see pictures of wild snakes or videos of wild snakes where they're eating these giant things that you're like, one, how did they kill that? And then two, how did they swallow that without tearing something? Um, and it makes me wonder if, if that any of that plays a role into it or just more of the natural sunlight or the competition with predators or what it is that, that is causing that. Yeah, so I've heard some researchers, and this is just spitballing. There's no data that goes, but I think it might be some sort of genetics based off of just that, that massive prey size that you're talking about. Yeah. You know, oh. be it a South Florida berm or be it a, a, a West African ball python, they're almost certainly at some point they're going to get a point where their eyes are too big for their stomach and, mm-hmm. and you know, end up eating something that, that no cap would have ever given Offered. them an opportunity. Yeah. And maybe yeah. that in and of itself kind of stretches the jaws that lead to some sort of, uh, um, uh, yeah, genetic Growth change in the, the gene expression there. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, so kind of like go, going in line with this. So you went to you went to that part of Africa for for pangolin research. Uh, you've done yep. a lot of traveling for research uh, projects. I know you. you uh, I don't know if you still do, but I remember seeing that you were doing uh, some sea turtle research and stuff a few years ago. Yeah, I've done some sea turtle stuff um, down in Costa Rica. Um, I've done. Uh, uh, project in Grenada doing uh, actually ultrasounding the Grenadian tree boas there which was which was really cool that's really cool. that's uh, awesome yeah so I, I've gotten when you're young and now that I'm <laughs> now that I'm markedly less young than I used to be it's, it's, the magic has has no longer there but when you're young <laughs> you can ask people to say hey can I partner up on your field project and and uh, usually they say yes no if you're if you're young and you're looking to get experience, just just ask, and that's how that that that's that's three quarters of my secret to being where I'm at now is to just ask. You know, the, if you don't ask, the answer is automatically no. So that's true. Yeah, that is true. 
And then you also you went recently to Australia too. But that was was that for research? That wasn't for research. That was just for fun, right? No, that was for fun actually. So yeah, the Australia trip was was actually uh, logistically intense. So well, so we did an Australia trip because I was actually presenting at a conference in New Zealand. So the mm. New Zealand Australia trip. So the New Zealand part was actually that was that was for research or research affiliated but yeah but our goal for the australia trip is like we want to hit every bucket list australia item we can yes. so that in the future when i do other australia trips i don't have to feel guilty like i'm missing something skipping when something. i want to yeah. go target you know red lies python or, or whatever in the middle of nowhere where it's like if i don't find one now i'm not a, i went to australia and did nothing you know yes <laughs> so, so yeah we, we hit all the touristy stuff and uh you know, that way my bucket list is satisfied on Australia, so now I can go do the stuff that I really am, you know, wouldn't mind wasting a trip if I fail over, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you did see some reptiles out there, right? Yeah, we actually only had a couple of nights of, like, decent herping, but, yeah, we found a carpet python and um, a pair of uh, of uh, spotted pythons and a bunch of bunch of keelbacks, a bunch of the brown tree snakes. But cool. We had a decent luck herping on Honestly, that's awesome. The carpet python, awesome. especially that one was like, you know, there's there's very, you know, those moments when you're when you're herping and you like spend hours picturing in front of you what something is going to look like to the mm -hmm. point where you can almost like convince yourself it's there. Yeah, and yeah. then it is there, and it's <laughs> so perfectly exactly how you how you were picturing it that it just doesn't seem real. That was that carpet python. <laughs> That's, that's awesome. That's pretty much how it was for copperheads with me. I was like, oh, man, it's going to be sitting in a pile of leaves and uh, the tail and its face. And then I was like, uh, is it actually – oh, my God, it's sitting right there. Yep. <laughs> oh, man, that's a, that's amazing. That's amazing. I definitely want to take a trip to Australia one day. You know, uh, Australia when... is, is big up on my list, but yeah. I, if I go there and I don't see a Bell Save Lace monitor, I'll cry. Oof. <laughs> Yeah, set, there was, the we didn't high. see any uh, the bell space, but 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 uh, we saw you know they're not to the level of being a garbage lizard there, but but the lace monitors are just Fairly everywhere. Common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those so, and death honestly, I like. Yeah, I was really bummed. We were we were actually when we were looking for the when we found the carpet python, we were actually targeting death adders. Mm. Um, we we're in a really good death adder spot, but you know had no luck on that. But it was really hard to complain because you know it was. It, yeah, carp python, and you know, there's also echidnas and and really cool mammals and mm -hmm. uh, quolls and stuff like that. So you know, it's I, I'm biologist first and foremost. So it's you know, my love is not limited to just just the snakes, but you know, right. It was a cool trip. Okay, so now here's the really then, important yeah, question uh, about the carpet python. What kind of carpet python was it, Steve? They're all carpet pythons. Come on now. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a coastal. Okay, all right. <laughs> Otherwise, people would be like, well, what species? Bruh, it's important. I don't Mr. Zeo River Locality Ball <laughs> Python. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it was, it was a really beautiful carpet python, too. It was. It actually, yeah, it, it was a really nice-looking one. And that, that makes sense, given the locality that it was in. You know, it mm -hmm. was like close to tropical but not quite tropical and if you think of a jungle carpet python as just a jungle python it makes sense that what you'd have would would be kind of similar looking to both yeah mm -hmm. yeah kind of rides that line yeah for sure for sure damn but yeah and then yeah uh, new zealand was 
was really cool too because you know they have all the cool geckos and, and stuff like that and i got to, got to play with the tuatera and that was I, that was it that was i was like oh i'm never going to be cooler than i am right now <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to beat tuataras man they're yeah. just so ancient they were way more different than i was expecting you know i mean don't get me wrong they're, they're clearly different than anything else and that's one thing to like conceptualize but it's a different thing when you're working with one it they're they're a different beast that's, that's so cool yeah that's badass did, did you see any of the geckos out there any of the naltinas or anything none in the wild they were all in a captive setting but still. um <laughs> yeah it was still it was still really cool um yeah we saw the uh like aquiline green geckos there was a couple of those um and then the uh otega banded skinks those were really neat yeah cool. that's pretty awesome that's awesome damn it i just wanted to do cool things like steve i want to go to southeast asia <laughs> southeast asia is like my dream area to go yeah. to. yeah yes southeast asia is next on my list but the hardest i i've been struggling because it's such a, a vast area of, of like how do i do a trip to their justice yeah mm-hmm. yeah there's so many different islands there's so many different species that you could target while you're out there and you know not every place wants exactly you know people like us to go out there so um uh-huh. it's it's tough to kind of narrow it down to what you would want to do or where you'd even be able to go you know yeah most definitely yeah. i uh yeah i i definitely am am on that train though like Southeast Asia is up there. Yeah, there is just so much. I want to go to Borneo to so bad. Borneo and Sumatra. Yeah. Ever since I was a kid, I never I mean, would have guessed that. Never. Yeah. No, no. never would have guessed it's that. A, <laughs> yeah, the, the the clock's ticking on a lot of areas in that part of the world. So I know. I'm, I'm. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. It, it it is. Yeah. So what we're saying is group trip. 2021. Yeah, I need to get some good contacts on the ground, and, and then, you know, that's usually how you can get the guarantee of a best trip is to know someone local, and, and they can mm-hmm. save you a bunch of waste time. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, all right, so I, I want to know uh, what – so you're doing all of this work. You've got, you know, everything that's going on with, with Eugene, um, your degrees, what, what you're doing with your own personal collection. Um, but then there's also – we haven't even talked about – this really much at all uh, your involvement with the nidovirus research um yeah i was i was, uh, I was gonna say we've done this whole conversation without even mentioning the word virus which is extremely yeah. pertinent right now I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's very true um yeah so you're you're one of those guys that's like on the front line of of the research for this um and damn there's a lot of stuff there is so much <laughs> and you know go, going to southeast carpet fest and hearing you and some of the other people on the panel talk about nidovirus and the research you guys have been doing and and the ways that it presents itself and all these different things that fall into line with it or about it it's like when people hear about nidovirus in in any of the reptile community it's like an alarm goes off people are losing their minds and everybody's freaking out but then they don't know anything beyond oh it's scary you you should be afraid of it and and then listening to all the different research you guys have been doing it it's more in depth than that for for a lot of people or how it can play out Mm -hmm. yeah so so this is an interesting conversation to have right now and the reason is and a lot of people don't realize this but but coronavirus is a nidovirus like 
it is within the same taxonomic order as all of the snake nidoviruses that we see. It's literally there's snake nidoviruses, which are serpentoviruses, mm-hmm. on one branch of the same tree, and then there's coronaviruses on the other. Um, so a lot of the parallels you're seeing now should sound awfully familiar if you've, if you've ever been listening in on the snake nidovirus stuff. The whole asymptomatic carriers, the whole, um, you know, like uh, why we have, in some contexts, it can totally destroy and, 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 you know, kill significant portions of the population. And then in other contexts, it's just to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really funny because whenever I give my talks about, about the snake nidoviruses, I always talk about, you know, why it's important. And I start by talking about SARS. And now it's like my talk introductions have written themselves for the next 10 years. Yeah, um, you just point at the, at the next television. You're like, that, you see that right there? That is it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, my, my research has become incredibly relevant on a short, very short time frame in, in terms mm-hmm. of, of even just beyond the snake community. But, but that is what makes it so complicated to explain to people is what I've been telling people is that if it has a lung, and honestly, even if it doesn't, there's probably a nidovirus somewhere in that species. Mm-hmm. Whether or not we found it yet is, remains to be seen. There's nidoviruses in insects, in cattle, in people, clearly in mm-hmm. all sides, sorts of reptiles, in, you know, again, you name it, it has a nidovirus. And these nidoviruses are sometimes very, very different from each other. I mean, we see some snake nidoviruses that that are, you know, 50% divergent from each other. So wow. very different viruses circulating. And it's really hard to explain to people that, like, virus doesn't necessarily equal death. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's there are some contexts in which some species of viruses in some populations can be a, a total death sentence. Mm-hmm. And yet you have other populations that, that have viruses circulating at a percentage that would make you genuinely squirm like 30 to 50% <laughs> yeah. without any disease whatsoever. So, but, but is that necessarily true if that virus jumps ship into a different species or a different population? And that's the questions that we're trying to answer is, is which viruses matter in which context? And that's not a, as straightforward of a, a, as a puzzle as it's easily digestible for most people, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it seemed like uh, when, when we were chatting with you and then when we were at Southeast Carpet Fest hearing, hearing more information on it, like there's, I mean, like you guys, as far as is like the Serpento viruses are concerned, like it, it's still very much in the infancy of research. Like there's still there's still a yeah. lot of questions to be answered. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a ton of questions to be answered, and and we have made a lot of of legwork so far, just of the studies that have been published, and and there's a bunch of stuff right now that that you know projects that I'm working on finishing up that'll that'll be pushed towards publication, and and will be hopefully answer kind of a, bridge some of the gaps of understanding. And, and mm-hmm. honestly, although the, <laughs> after I complete my PhD, I expect to end up with more questions than I have answers at the end of it. That, that's how, yeah. <laughs> how complicated some of this stuff can get. But, but um, yeah, it, it's, uh, there's a lot we just don't know yet. Yeah. And there's a lot we're, we're continuing to understand. Now, a lot of what we 
do know or a lot of what we assume we know is based off of research on coronaviruses. So mm-hmm. um, a lot of the broad statements we make currently, we can say, okay, I don't know that for sure for sepentaviruses, but the next closest thing we have are coronaviruses, and this is how they act. So right. now what we're doing is, is the research to say, okay, what about these viruses specifically? And so um, a lot of the studies we're working on now, like um, which disinfectants kill it and which, you know, um, how efficient, how, how long can it last on in the environment? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the first aspects of the studies that we, that we should be pushing out first is, is uh, which how long they can last in the environment. So it um, and it, it falls within close to what we'd expect with, with some of the other stuff based on coronaviruses, where honestly, in terms of their their how stable they are in the environment outside of, you know, a week or so, it's, they're, they, they're not very stable. And that's that is the benefit of nidoviruses is that um, they're enveloped viruses. And so all you have to do is break that envelope and they're no longer a functional virus. So it's, mm. you know, you're of the mindset that you're battling the virus, but, but in all actuality, what you're doing is you're battling one single layer of, of fat. Mm-hmm. And once you break that, that's, that's it. Yeah. So if, uh, if you had to really dumb nidovirus down to somebody who's like, I just heard about this thing. I don't know anything about it, but I'm now like horrified. How would you uh, describe nidovirus to that person in the most like layman's terms ever? Because uh, I know like one of the things that um, that we've seen, and like I mean, as soon as you get really into like the arboreal snake community, like it seems like there's for a while there was like a nidovirus post like everywhere, just like trying to get more information about it. And um, yep, there's yeah. because there's so many uh, unanswered questions, you know, like I get frustrated trying to explain it to people because we just don't know everything. And they're like, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And they just expect there to already be this documentation of it. And and a lot of these like a lot of the newer keepers that are just starting to find out about it um, don't understand why there isn't all this research already done. Um like we had a customer recently who was like, yeah, I get all my stuff tested because like blah, blah, blah. And, you know, is like, I'm like, well, what is the, what does your test result look like? And he's like, it's a piece of paper that says nidovirus negative, you know? And, and it's like, okay, well, what strain, you know, what, what species, you know, there's so many extra questions that like we just don't have answers to right now. So if, if you were going to explain this to somebody who had like zero understanding, um, you know, what, what would be the easiest way to kind of break it down to them? Sure. So, um, yeah, it's a group of viruses. And I guess I'll talk about specifically snake, nidoviruses, slash serpentoviruses. So mm-hmm. they're a group of viruses that target the oral and respiratory tract of a lot of different types of reptiles. They have viruses in snakes, viruses in turtles, viruses in lizards, um, they're all targeting the the oral tissue and mm. um, can make it into the lungs, and that's where you start to see fatal consequences from some of these viruses. So some of these viruses have the potential to wipe out colonies. They can and they do. Mm-hmm. Others of these viruses don't seem to be as 
medically significant in some contexts. So the the easiest way when you're talking about nidovirus is mm-hmm. to prevent it from getting into a colony in the first place. And, and that right. comes down to testing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the important part of testing is to know that, that not all testing is created equal. And it's definitely one of those things where, uh, you know, a $25 test is not the same as a, as a $60 test or a $100 test kind of thing. Right. Um, so what's the biggest difference that, between that? So a lot of your cheaper tests are what's called a qPCR mm-hmm. and it's a different type of PCR test and so a PCR test is just looking for any bit of in this case RNA of the virus mm-hmm. um, amplifying that and then you know if it's there it'll either come back as positive or negative that, that you were able to uh, replicate the RNA that you're able to find that RNA Mm-hmm. Now, a qPCR has a unique ability in that it, it uses this fluorescence, so it can actually quantify, which is what the, the Q stands for. Mm-hmm. Um, it can quantify the amount of virus in the sample. And because of that, it's actually a more, uh, like, not a more accurate test, but it can pick up virus in lower levels than a standard PCR. Okay. But the reason it can do that is those fluorescent primers need a lot more uh, specific of a sequence. And Mm. so a qPCR test, if I know that my ball python colony has ball python nidovirus in it, then I would use a qPCR for ball python nidovirus because I'm only looking for one type of virus, and I already know what that virus is, Mm -hmm. um, and I know that what's in my collection can be detected by that test. So that's why you see some of the cheaper tests are like, for ball python nido or for creature python nido and not just nido virus right for that is because they require far more specific sequence that will miss divergent strains if you don't already know what you're looking for Mm. now the more expensive tests and the reason they're more expensive is they're a lot more labor intensive Mm -hmm. is your standard pcr test uh, or um yeah and so that is going to um instead of putting it into this machine that reads out kind of the fluorescence based off of how much virus there is, this is like you put it in a machine, you take out what comes out of the machine, you run it on a gel, and if there's a band on that gel of the right size, that would denote a positive. Now, if you have a really good and some of the more expensive tests, Mm -hmm. they take that band and sequence it. And so then they can say, not only is this snake positive but it's positive for a virus that is you know 98 percent similar to ball python nidovirus so it's probably just a new strain of of ball python nidovirus so that's kind of your your different levels of testing you have your cheapest test which can tell you if a very specific pathogen that you already know about is already in your is in your colony and so that Mm -hmm. would be used for like i would use that to to uh reoccurringly test my colony if i knew that test could pick it up Mm-hmm. Then you have kind of your mid-range standard PCR tests, which are just going to tell you, yep, we detected a band that would be consistent of the right size for, for nidovirus. Mm-hmm. And then you have your really high-end tests to say, not only was it positive, but we sequenced it and it you know, came back as carbon python nido or ball python nido or you name it, or, or something different. We've, uh, we, we've had three new 
nidoviruses submitted to us like in the past two weeks oh my god like very different nidoviruses yeah <laughs> it, it's again it, if it has a lung it has a virus we just haven't found it yet so to put that into perspective there, for people how many different kinds of nidoviruses have you guys found roughly oh gosh i have no idea um more than 20 yeah at the species level more than 20 for sure probably closer to 30 mm-hmm. um and then at, within strains within that probably there's got to be 100 okay so it's, wow. it's a pretty widespread thing is what you're saying yes it's a pretty widespread thing and the only reason that we can detect all of those different types of viruses off of one test is sure dumb luck like <laughs> the the primers that detect that virus they got it right the first time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the primers that we use just happen to be really, really good diagnostic primers at picking out a huge variety of, of nidoviruses. But those same primers, you could not do in a, PC, in a qPCR test. You just couldn't. They, they're, they're totally different types. Of, the way they operate is different. So you might miss it or something like that. Well, really, the, so the thing is, they these primers pick up a lot of different nidoviruses, mm. but they also pick up a lot of other things. Now, mm. you can filter out the stuff that isn't a nidovirus based off of size. So that's why you run it on a gel and different bands will come out. The different bands equate to different size chunks of DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so a positive nidovirus test probably actually has about five bands on it, if not more, but uh, only... One of those is, is would denote that it's positive for uh, a nidovirus because it's at the right band length. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you couldn't do that with a qPCR because it, it really doesn't make that distinction in the same way that that you know this is a fragment was of the right really just uh, what it was able to to uh, um, replicate. So like. Yes, you would get fluorescence from the nidoviruses, but you'd also get fluorescence from all the stuff that isn't a nidovirus that that uh, would really kind of throw off the test. So that's why you, you really need a specific set of primers that's only going to find that virus and nothing else. Mm. But what you're trading for, what you're trading off for, is that you can't find as many different types of viruses. Um, whereas the other types of tests, your trade-off is that um, you know, you you can find a lot more different types of viruses, but you also find a bunch of other stuff too that you have to filter out based off size. So it, it's all these tests are. I wouldn't say they're just as much an art as a science because that they're definitely squarely within the realm of, of science. But mm-hmm. you know, they're 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 not as uh, it's not just a magical thing where you take a swab and you put it in a liquid and it turns blue if it's positive or red if it's negative or something like that. You know, it's, it's right. you know, there's, there's, there's a process and, and, you know, all of those processes have different trade-offs. So that's why testing can be kind of tricky because you have to make that, that trade-off of like, well, what is it that I am really looking for? And do I want a cheaper test so I can do more of them? Or do I want a more expensive test? So I know what I'm looking for. And so that, that's, that's why it's also complicated. It's like, yes, you can get a $25 nidovirus test, but is that really telling you what you need to know? Mm-hmm. Probably not. So, it, yeah, it, it's, it's, 
that's what's frustrating about it is that there's a lot of different viruses. So it's not even just that we're, we're talking about one thing. We're talking about a group of many things. Uh, right. And so, yeah, the, the easiest thing you can do is to prevent it from coming in your colony in the first place. And that's just based off of quarantine and, and diet within that quarantine period. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you find that there is a virus within your colony – then you're really kind of looking through a practical lens of virus in my colony. Is it causing disease? Under what circumstance should I be scared of it? Maybe I need to do that snake last in the room. Maybe I need to make sure that I, I you know, pay, pay special attention to not cross-contaminate from this snake. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I have, I have, at this point in my colony, virus-positive snakes. Say that one more time. You, you were breaking up a little bit. Say that one once more. Yeah, I think I have, no. I have four. Yeah, four nidovirus positive snakes mm-hmm. in my colony. I have three uh, canine sandboas and one reticulated python. Mm-hmm. Both are adults that I've had for years that have never broken with a rep mm-hmm. uh, or anything like that. So that these are this indicates to me that this is probably one of those viruses that are just out there and probably not doing anything um but in the context of my colony you know i have to make sure that i don't that i that i feed those guys last that i'm making sure i don't cross contaminate and that you know i'm paying special attention that that um that virus isn't being circulated into a different species where it might be able to cause some damage but you know at that point it's like well i've had these snakes for 10 years and nothing else in the colony tested positive for these same viruses so i'm just gonna let it be yeah and so for those people who think they hear nidovirus and they think death immediate, uh, you know, some of those snakes that have tested positive for you have been living for years and years and years and they're adult animals and they're not, you know, experiencing symptoms and they're, they're not dead. So um, for, for those people who are thinking that nidovirus immediately means, you know, death and like when people hear inclusion body disease, IBD, they think immediate like death and destruction and it's mm-hmm. not that simple when it when you break it down yeah and really what it comes down to is that that we just haven't done industry level testing yeah for, right. for any of the things you're talking about like when you're talking about ibd or, or arenavirus i don't think anyone's testing for arenavirus because i don't think they would be happy to find the answers they find yeah <laughs> yeah and and i and i feel like it's probably going to be pretty similar with 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 nidovirus where uh the prevalence is probably really, I don't even have to say probably, the prevalence is a lot higher than people think it is. Mm-hmm. But the industry is still here. You know, it's not, they haven't all succumbed to disease yet. Right, right. So, you know, and that's what makes it tricky because which viruses matter in which context is, is not straightforward. So it is nidovirus instant death? No. But I also want to walk the fine line of making sure I'm not telling people that they don't have to worry about it because yeah. you, you most certainly do. Yeah, right, now, right. Yeah, I, I can talk about my own colony and the reason that, that again, this is no planning on my part to get into my current PhD position uh, studying these viruses. I, I lucked, I guess you could say lucked, into this position because <laughs> I had a, a nidovirus outbreak into my colony. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, you know, happen to be down the street from, from the institution doing the, some of the forefront research on, on these viruses. But in my colony of 150 adult animals, I had, I think, 
six different species of nidovirus, and then within that, nine different strains. Wow. And that's a one colony of 150 animals yeah. of, of, I don't even remember how many species. Not, not a ton, like almost every species had their own unique virus. Like this isn't something that, that these are viruses that have their own unique origins. It wasn't just that I had one snake with a virus and then, and then it's you know, spread. that exploded into my colony. It was, right. No, these are, you know, the, the viruses are out there in very high numbers, but in some contexts, it does nothing. And in other contexts, like in my colony, when I moved buildings, that stress pressure caused an outbreak of disease where, you know, these viruses probably cost me about about a quarter million dollars in animal and, and sales. So, Oof. you know, I don't want to say don't worry about it because there's plenty to be worried about. But mm-hmm. I also don't want to say that, that, you know, virus instantly equals death. It's all context and yeah. virus and species dependent. And honestly, it's probably even colony specific. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard colonies of green tree pythons, especially where, you know, in in their own colony, they do there's no disease whatsoever mm-hmm. until they transfer, and then all of a sudden they can they can take your colony out. There there are, you know, I've had animals that I've had animals that that are like kind of typhoid Marys that like they test positive. They've never, ever, ever broken with a respiratory infection. Mm-hmm. But every time I throw another snake in that cage to breed it with, they're dead within a year. Hmm. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nidovirus, still so much to learn. Um, and, and really just – so it's really just a, a matter on, on, the, on the keepers, both – novice and advanced to just really do your due diligence when you're working in your collection working to cut down any aspect of cross-contamination that you can mm-hmm. um between like using hand sanitizers and uh like i know at, at nerd we do a lot of the bleach sink yep. stuff um to disinfect and then just making sure like you're disinfecting your surfaces that you're cleaning on that you've your got tools your tools like all that, that. Yeah. um to really just cut down that possibility. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And, and and there's, you know, a lot of it is, is kind of what we're doing now with the whole, you know, social thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You're trying to break the number of opportunities a virus has to spread. So how I manage it within my colony is is it would not make sense for me both financially or or honestly logistically to swap out gloves between every snake or to even to do hand sanitizer between every snake. So, you know, what it comes down to is I'm saying, okay, I have each of these racks as a unit. Mm -hmm. And so I swap gloves every time I transfer between racks. And then within each rack, I have my breeding group set up. So I'm doing hand sanitizer between each breeding group. And so it's all about just saying, okay, well, if I did have a virus positive animal in that group, it's going to maybe have the opportunity to spread for, you know, three or four other snakes in its breeding group. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and instead, it's a little more contained than if I had just been like, okay, well, on to the next snake or whatever. Right. right. So it's, it's just, you know, and, and, and I, I'm at the end of the day, I'm a realist. You know, it, if you wanted to, to ask a veterinarian about how you keep a, a perfectly healthy colony, it would be, you know, swap out gloves between each snake, but, but, right. you know, let's be real. That's not, that's not feasible. So it's really <laughs> yeah. just about, you know, 
practical containment in terms of, of how do you keep something from, you know, if, if you do have a problem, keep it from, from putting you out of the business. Like it, like it functionally did for me for, for at least a couple of years. Yeah, mm-hmm. man, that is intense. Definitely gives you a lot to think about though. Um, not just for people who have got one or two snakes, but you know, a, a lot of people in the reptile community don't just have, you know, just one species. They keep a variety of different things. They don't just keep, you know, one of a particular species. They keep a variety of different things. And it's definitely something for people to think about, especially going forward with who they're buying from, what they're buying, uh, what their quarantine practices look like, what they're cleaning and, and all that sort of stuff. All that plays into, you know, how this could progress going going forward in the future. Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't, virus or disease in and of itself like doesn't instantly mean you did something wrong yes like right that is the other thing that the the industry has a really bad tendency to do is like well he sells diseased animals so he's bad yeah right um and that's not the like we know these viruses are in wild populations as well like it's not (laughs) it, it should be yeah it should be not surprising that that animals coming out of the wild even if it's generations removed, still carry their their you know microbiome with them, right? And right. you know viruses are are part of that. Exactly. Man, that's some crazy shit. Yeah. Every time, every time <laughs> I like think about it, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is gonna, this is just there's so much to it, and the more that you learn about it, uh, the more that it kind of you know gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, like, I've been telling people if they have questions about it to go check out the recording of that talk that they did at Southeast Carpet Fest that Steve and a couple other people who are doing research on the nidovirus to go take a look at the recording of that and and learn a little bit because there is still, I mean, they're still learning things, so we're still definitely learning. And there's there's this huge information gap uh, that people just need to get get on as as soon as they can, you know. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I would like to think, hopefully at some point and maybe this is just me wishful thinking um that we'll be able to get to a point where especially like a lot of the breeders who do, who do the reptile shows and stuff like that all have like the common there's there becomes this common knowledge of what nidovirus is yes and 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 how to uh a answer the questions mm-hmm. about it yeah um you know because i've heard from some people you know they buy a snake and and the breeder asks them oh well what you know are you buying from other people you got to be careful because there's this deadly virus that's killing Mm -hmm. you know whatever and like that fear installation is no good yes you know so to be able to get to a point where everybody has at least some kind of common understanding of what is actually going on with this um I, i think that would maybe allow some of the chaos around it to simmer down uh a, a little bit you know so one we're not hope. all like uh, huh? one would hope yeah exactly <laughs> I, I know it's maybe yeah, a little wishful that, thinking that seems a little optimistic based off of my experience in herpeticulture but i know we shall see. i know i'm just i'm He's trying yeah i'm trying <laughs> damn it i'm just well, trying really we can't all go do pangolin you... research damn it steve <laughs> <laughs> well that, that was that was a thing too like like my experience with these viruses just just opened up this and just honestly uncomfortable level of, of questioning and analysis at, at the the world around us. That like so the the world that we live in, where 
someone such as myself, along with all of the pathogens and the dirt on my shoes, can jump on a plane and go from Florida to Australia in 24 hours, that's a world that's existed within a human lifetime. Before Mm -hmm. that, it was, you know, you take a ship and you're there weeks from now where whatever's on your shoes is probably dead or or tracked off. You make it there alive. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the world that we live in where there's pathogen spread, and and again, this is a reality that I think that the world as a whole is, is thrust into understanding in a very short time frame. The, The world that we live in, is one that could be, you know, scary in terms of, of disease spread. And and so, you know, when you look at Kittred and you think about where it's been, mm-hmm. you know, where, where, where have I been and, and where can that go in such a short time frame? And so I feel like the, the, the more we're starting to, to look, the more uh, things we're going to find as it relates to this. And, and, you know, that's a hard position to be in is, is figuring out, when they matter and when they don't and mm-hmm. what could happen to make them matter. Um, now, hopefully with, with the research that we're pushing out, it'll, you know, kind of at least have a, a, a framework for people to go to, to understand their questions. But I almost feel like there needs to be some uh, intermediate because, you know, some of the scientific writing can be, Honestly, even jargony for for my taste is it's it's something I've definitely had to get used to. So yeah. you know, making sure that this avail the information is is not only in existence but also you know digestible to everybody. To, yeah, to fully under exactly. Yeah, yeah, man. Well, hopefully so. Um, all right, so we're about at that time point it, where we got to wrap it up. About that time. Um, so before we go, the one question we have to ask is. Uh, at at and in any point or any part of the industry, uh, be it something in your own collection or something that you have seen happening in the industry, what's out there that's got you excited? Um, be it like a morph project, a species project. I mean, he did just get some scrub pythons. He did get scrub <laughs> pythons. Yep, yeah. I swear to God, if we have so, two scrub things back to back, he's yes! really upset. <laughs> <laughs> So the 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 so I'm gonna do a quick aside real quick on the scrub pythons because that that turned into yeah we're basically I was able to get a pair really quick because it looks like Florida laws are gonna change where they're gonna yep. become really illegal really quick where mm-hmm. I luckily had the permits to have them up till this point so mm-hmm. it those those might be one of the last pairs of scrub pythons to make it into the state ever wow um, which honestly if the laws change the way they're gonna change I'll never be able to breed them so <sighs> I have this pair of scrub pythons that I can look at in perpetuity and that's it. But <laughs> anyway, all that aside, um, Oh, what gets me excited about the industry? You know, lately I've been really on the, the species kick and what started mm-hmm. with that was the locality ball pythons. And like, if ever there was a weird thing to build a collection off of, it's, it's weird that it started with objectively $25 ball pythons. in one context, ball pythons. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I've been I've been really excited in transferring over my colony to be a collection of, of rare, specifically python species. So I've been trying mm-hmm. to get a member of each clade of pythons. Um, and so what excites me is, is the people working with the weird stuff. And it's the people working with the weird stuff, that the stuff that was 
that was or is $25 now um, imported for super cheap, the people who care enough to, to keep those going in a captive context, yes. mm-hmm. that excites me. So for me, it's my, my like my West African Samboas. I have a huge colony of captive bred West African Samboas that every offspring I produce, I could not give away. Like they're, <laughs> they're imported for so cheap yeah. that, you know, no one cares, but they're just a stroke of a pen away from being totally disbarred from the industry. And, and you mm. know, they're there's unique. a lot of species out there. Yeah. And it's not even that they're unique. It's just that, that, that no one cares. And eventually that's going to be taken away from us. Yeah. It's not, maybe that's not today, true. maybe not tomorrow, but there will be a time when West Africa does not export any West African Samboa. And when that time comes, I'm glad I have a, a captive red colony. So it's, the people working with the scrub pythons, the people working with, you know, Timors or, or the any of the Indonesian ground or tree boa type stuff, the mm, stuff yes. that the Kandoya that are that are imported for dirt cheap that no one cares about currently. I, love I am <laughs> really yeah, I I'm really glad that, that there are people out there that at least take the time to hopefully at least there are people out there that take the time to try and, and captive breed them and establish them in captivity because Within my time in herpiculture, which has been not that long, I guess, you know, a little over a decade, I've seen species come and go. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was mm-hmm. there was a time when I walked past a Malukan scrub python on a table for, for 200 bucks. Oof. Now and I'm kicking not, myself. <laughs> yeah. That time doesn't exist anymore. And the clock is counting down on all of these species, every yeah. single one. Yeah, but we don't know when that timer ends. So anyone who's taking the due diligence to 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 breed or keep a colony going of of anything that no one cares about now, that I'm grateful for. Like I give you a specific example. Um, oh, the uh, what is it? Joe Joe Bass, the girl working with all the different samboas that that has all the different types of samboas, like mm. all the Arabians and stuff like that. Yeah, like. Now that Arabian Samboas are a meme, that she's like the only person in the country I would know to get, to ask about them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so. very true. I'm that with it. Very true. So, uh, Steve, if people wanted to learn more, get in contact with you, how would they do that? I don't know. Just go email yourself i'm probably not going to reply <laughs> the, damn and that's that's pretty close I, to my he's answer. too cool now he's in a hazmat no, suit a, in I, the I, lab I telling you to fuck off yeah he's doing his phd he's, he's gonna be doctor he's dr tillis you know he's too he's got too much stuff no, going I, on. I i do i have a i would say probably instagram's the best i i have a instagram at reptilis uh that's probably going to be the best place to follow me i don't post much on there again i don't i don't have a desire to to talk with or deal with customers anymore so so don't it don't hit him up own, just and, don't hit him yeah, up just follow him appreciate guess, the but, pictures uh, but, yeah <laughs> i'm with it I'm but with yeah it. cool all right so that's gonna that's, be a wrap on episode three that wraps it up dude thank, thank you, you so much very for, much for, for hanging out, out with us. absolutely thanks for having me